Hello, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a Green New Books podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. I'm your host, Staten Martindale, and today my guest is Jeff Sebo, who's the director of the Animal Studies Master's Program at New York University and the author of the uh, brand new book, Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, Why Animals Matter for Pandemics, Climate Change, and Other Catastrophes. I think you can guess from the title what a lot of our conversation will be about, Um, and the first half of this interview, much like the first half of the book, does focus on the connections between industries that exploit non-human animals, such as factory farming or deforestation. Um, Also are connected to pandemics and climate change, uh, which affect both human and non-human animals. But then in the second half, we also get into some of the philosophical weeds of this, uh, such as which animals count and how much, how should we think about human or non-human populations that aren't born yet, what are our ethical obligations to them, and some of the stuff that's most exciting to me, uh, how could our political and legal processes better include other species? So we go through a lot here, and there's even more in the book, um, so if you enjoy the interview, I encourage you to check that out. I'll also say that our March 29th uh, book club for Patreon subscribers uh, is on a book called Barn 8 by Deb Olin Unferth, which is a novel about a couple people who decide they want to try to uh, rescue some factory farm chickens. So if you're interested in some of the animal rights issues discussed in this interview, I hope you will uh, consider subscribing on Patreon if you haven't already and joining us for that March 29th book club still plenty of time to pick up a copy and read the book all right here we go hi i'm here with jeff sebo author of saving animals saving ourselves jeff thanks so much for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me so, yeah, like I said, the, the name of the book is Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, Why Animals Matter for Pandemics, Climate Change, and Other Catastrophes. Before we dig into some of the details of this book, I was hoping you could just tell us big picture what you're trying to do with, with the project and what led you to write it. Yeah, so, so this book is about how animals matter for global health and environmental issues like pandemics and climate change and how global health and environmental issues like pandemics and climate change matter for animals. So I want to focus on both halves of that equation. And, and so the story that I saw in the book is a story about how our use of animals contributes to these global health and environmental threats and how these global health and environmental threats then impact animals all over again. So animals are caught up in these global systems, both as causes through no faults of their own and as victims in factory farming and deforestation and the wildlife trade, we treat them in ways that increase the risk of pandemics and climate change, outbreaks, fires, and floods. And then when outbreaks and fires and floods happen, they harm animals directly and indirectly. Animals are vulnerable to these threats and also vulnerable to increased violence and neglect from humans when these threats occur. And and so I try to tell that story in the book and then argue for including animals in global health and environmental advocacy and policy by reducing our use of them as part of our pandemic and climate change mitigation efforts and increasing our support for them as part of our pandemic and climate change adaptation efforts. And I also uh, present some policy proposals that I think can help us advance these goals in the short term. And I also discuss some of the more complicated political and um, philosophical and scientific questions that we need to answer in order to make more progress on these issues in the long run. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you had a previous book on food animals and the environment and also contributed to a book on chimpanzee rights. Um, mm-hmm. What led you to pandemics and climate change? <laughs> well, I think that these are obviously interesting and important topics and, and now unfortunately timely topics. They they were a little bit less timely when I started working on the book in, in 2017. But of course, starting around 2020, as we know, uh, uh, COVID-19 occurred. And, and around that same time, the Australia bushfires were occurring and then and then later other floods and fires and, and signs of climate change. So, so these are important and, and now increasingly timely and urgent 
issues. And, and I was interested in, in connecting animals with those issues because I think animal welfare is one of the most important and neglected topics we can possibly be working on. But then also some of these global catastrophic threats like human-caused pandemics and climate change are also uh, among the, the most important and neglected issues we, we can be working on. And, and the connections between these issues are especially, I think, important and neglected. And so I really wanted to shine a light on that and argue for integrating these, these discussions so that we can understand how animals fit in to these broader issues that we need to be working on so that we can be motivated to think about animals when working on these issues and think about these issues when, when working in support of animals, but also do it with our eyes open and recognize how complicated these, these problems are and how, how many different issues we need to think about in order to do this work well. Mm -hmm. You say in the preface or introduction that you, you'd already written about two drafts uh, before 2020 and the, when the coronavirus pandemic took off. Um, mm -hmm. Pandemics are a big part of the book. Were they, mm -hmm. were they as big a part before that happened? How much rewriting did you have to do or did it actually fit what you were trying to do? Yeah, it was a part of what I was trying to do all along. Uh, the, the book was all along the way about why animals matter for these global health and environmental threats. And, you know, these, these health and environmental threats are themselves related to each other. Pandemics and climate change can be mutually reinforcing problems. And animal agriculture and deforestation and the wildlife trade all contribute in various ways to pandemics. And animal agriculture and deforestation both contribute in various ways to climate change. And so the connections between pandemics and climate change, especially with animals and our use of animals at the center of both, that was always part of the story. But of course, this was before COVID-19. It was a long time since we had a proper global pandemic. And so, so when I was writing the first two drafts, it was really warning us about what could happen if we mm. keep treating animals this way and we keep treating the planet this way. And you know, now the book is still sending that same message, but but we have a new updated cautionary tale that that we can point to to show the kind of problem that can arise if if we keep treating animals in the planet this way. So so when I rewrote the book for a third time during COVID nineteen uh, in in twenty twenty, the frameworks were the same and the main information and arguments were all the same. But obviously the case studies were different and, and COVID-19 and the Australian bushfires and other recent case studies, those were of course much more prominent in the, in the final draft of the book. And I maybe wrote it with a little bit of a different energy or spirit <laughs> than I might've written it if it was fully uh, uh, foreseeing and, and trying to warn people about some kind of future threat as opposed to writing it while living through a present threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a hypothetical future threat feels different than one that we are unfortunately, unfortunately still living with. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so yeah, I guess um, I think most listeners of this podcast will, will be um, agreeing that, that climate change and, and environmental issues are a, an under addressed uh, threat right now. I think probably most people in the world are agreeing now that maybe we haven't adequately prepared for pandemics um, I, I think the, the animal welfare piece is one that I feel strongly about and that we've touched on in some previous episodes here, um, but is maybe not as widely held to be, uh, you know, I think you just called it one of the most neglected and important issues, um, right. out there. So what is kind of the brief, uh, the, the brief case for, we should really be, be thinking and caring more about other animals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks Thanks for mentioning that. I think it can be really easy for people to focus on one half of the equation that I mentioned earlier, the part where our use of animals contributes to health and environmental threats like pandemics and climate change, but then ignore the other half of the equation where, where our use of animals also harms and kills trillions of animals per year directly, and then many more animals per year indirectly via these global human caused changes like deforestation, development, agriculture, transportation, and increasingly outbreaks, fires, and floods, and so on. And so the reason animal welfare matters, I mean, this, this is now an old argument that many people have made in, in different ways within different frameworks, but many non-human animals are sentient beings. They have the capacity for consciousness and emotionality and a sense of self and bonds of care and interdependence. 
and more more concretely, they have the capacity to experience pleasure and pain and, and happiness and suffering. And if you are sentient, that is enough for you to morally matter for your own sake. If you can feel pleasure and pain and happiness and suffering, then it matters to you how we treat you. It matters to you what happens to you. And we have a responsibility to consider your experiences and your preferences and your interests when making decisions about how to treat you. And one really important development in, in uh, philosophy of mind and cognitive science over, over the past 50 years or so is not only have we realized that sentient beings have moral status, but we have also realized that many more animals are sentient beings than we previously appreciated. And so when you combine those two ideas that sentience is enough to matter and that huge numbers of animals are both sentient and affected by our activity, then it shows how much we really ought to be considering animal welfare when making decisions that affect animals, which increasingly many of our decisions do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I want to maybe get into later uh, which animals have been shown to be most likely sentient, um, which are are surprising. But first, uh, maybe let's just sort of continue uh, making the case laid out in the title. Um, So Mm -hmm. with... Pandemics, you know, you said there's two sides of the coin, which is the the industries that are are often driving pandemics and disease outbreaks, uh, such as industrial animal agriculture, deforestation, the wildlife trade. Um, these are also industries that directly harm non-human animals. The effects of these industries harm them. The effects of these industries harm us. Um, with pandemics, more specifically. Why do animals in these industries matter for pandemics? Sure. So, so factory farming and deforestation matter in ways that are linked. So, so factory farming matters both because this is an industry that breeds and raises uh, very many non-human animals. And, and it breeds, breeds these animals to grow as big as possible, as fast as possible. And, and these animals have weakened immune systems and are susceptible to disease and then kept in cramped and toxic conditions in close proximity to each other. And this is an ideal place for diseases to develop and spread across farmed animal populations. And then we, we add to that uh, huge quantities of antibiotics and other antimicrobials, both to stimulate growth and to suppress the spread of disease. And so when you combine huge numbers of of sick animals with weakened immune systems kept in close proximity to each other with high quantities of antibiotics and antimicrobials, that makes factory farms ideal breeding grounds for novel antibiotic or antimicrobial resistant pathogens like COVID-19. And then uh, deforestation increases the risk of pandemics, both because wild animals already carry huge numbers of viruses that have the potential to spread to humans, Uh, And when we cut down forests, we increase interactions between humans and wild animals. And so we increase the risk that uh, viruses can spread from wild animals to humans. And we can also reduce forested biodiversity, which can sometimes function as a buffer against the spread of zoonotic diseases across wild animal populations. So with deforestation, when, when we cut down these trees, we both make it more likely that diseases will spread among animals and make it more likely that diseases will spread to humans. And these are linked points because factory farming, industrial animal agriculture is also a leading driver of deforestation. So when we support factory farming, not only do we support uh, the, the breeding and raising of all these animals and, and uh, uh, application of, of antibiotics and antimicrobials to them, and, and the increased risk of pandemics through those mechanisms. But then we also indirectly support increased deforestation and the, the spread of diseases through that mechanism. So, so these are all linked ways of increasing the risk of outbreaks and epidemics and pandemics. And then, of course, the wildlife trade is this whole other way of, of increasing the risk of, of pandemics because we, we take animals from the wild or we breed them in captivity uh, and that, of course, in and of itself increases interactions between humans and wild animals. And then often we keep these animals in, in confinement, again, in conditions where they can easily get sick and spread diseases to each other and then spread diseases to humans. One of the stories, of course, about how COVID-19 might have 
emerged is through a, a live market in Wuhan, China, uh, where, where an animal might have spread a, a virus to a human. Now, that is only one story about how COVID-19 might have emerged, and, and we might not ever know for sure how COVID-19 emerged. But whether or not this particular pandemic emerged that way, what we know is that a pandemic can emerge in any mm-hmm. of, of these ways that I mm-hmm. have discussed. And that is what is important for our thinking about what to do moving forward. Yeah, and I think what we've also learned is that pandemics can not only emerge in these situations, but also get worse through these situations. Um, yes, exactly. With, right. I think one, uh, there were a few articles and you talk about in your book, um, the issue of minks in particular with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Where when we think factory farming, we're often thinking um, animals raised for, for meat, uh, but animals mm-hmm. raised for clothes are also kept in tightly packed, uh, inhumane conditions, um, mink fur is, is popular. Uh, and this minks, the particular uh, particularities of their immune systems have proved to be uh, very susceptible to COVID-19 and to potentially mm-hmm. spreading variants or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is a- absolutely right. Yeah, the, the mink pandemic in, in 2020 was a really sad case. So this was a, a situation where basically, as you say, we feel pretty confident that COVID-19 didn't emerge from mink farms. But once it emerged, all of these places where we keep animals in, in confinement, like various types of animal farms, became places where COVID-19 could uh, spread to animals and then spread among animals and then potentially develop mutations, and and then we could have new variants on our hands. And so when when COVID-19 started to spread all around the world, we knew, or at least we should have known, that it was only a matter of time before it would start to infect farmed minks, who, who, like you said, are already vulnerable to these sorts of respiratory diseases and are made especially vulnerable when kept in conditions like we keep them in these fur farms. And so what happened? Well, of course, (laughs) the same thing that happened in all sorts of other animal farms all around the world, we decided to protect ourselves from the possibility of these novel variants by culling, which is our euphemistic way of saying killing, all of the minks we were keeping in captivity. And so they were just a a really sort of uh, unfortunately good example of, of the many types of issues that can arise here because they illustrated at one and the same time the ways in which our use of animals can contribute to these threats and then the ways in which these threats can harm animals, not only because they make them vulnerable uh, to to the direct harms like respiratory diseases, but also because they make them vulnerable to indirect harms like increased violence from, from humans who would rather kill them all at the same time than accept any kind of uh, increased risk of of new variants or any increased uh, cost or burden associated with caring for animals uh, who who need to be protected from these diseases. So so the minks were vulnerable in all, all sorts of ways, and for that reason, were were unfortunately a very good example to focus on in order to illustrate how all these problems come together. Mm-hmm. And in moving forward, dealing with pandemics, you highlight um, something called One Health as a paradigm for for public health um, and highlight sort of some of the strengths of One Health and maybe where it could be improved with regard to animals. So could you just tell us what, what that is? Yeah, so One Health is this really interesting new, relatively new framework that governments have been using in order to grapple with health threats. And, and basically the idea is that human and non-human and environmental health are linked. And so our efforts to uh, study and improve human and non-human and environmental health should also be linked. Uh, In particular, the more we learn about non-human and environmental health, the more we can learn about human health as a result. And the more we improve non-human and environmental health, the more we can improve human health as a result. So One Health, the One Health uh, Health Policy Framework, is really an invitation to pay more attention to and do more in service of non-human and environmental health so that we can reap the benefits 
as humans. And I think this is great as far as it goes. It really is true that human and non-human and environmental health are linked in, in the ways you and I have now been discussing and in many other ways as well. And, and we should be tracking those connections and considering them when thinking about how to improve human health. But what are the limitations? I think that there are a few main limitations. One is that even insofar as our goal is to uh, promote human health, we are not doing that enough. For example, uh, factory farming and, and deforestation and the wildlife trade, those pose significant threats for human health, but we are currently, in most respects, acting like we can deal with that through minor incremental reforms that leave the status quo regarding our use of animals in place. But there is no way that we can maintain these systems, particularly factory farming and deforestation, no way that we can maintain these systems uh, and, and properly protect and, and promote human health. The only way to properly protect and promote human health is by ending these systems and replacing them with humane and healthful and sustainable plant-based alternatives that, that would also require much less uh, land use. So, so one shortcoming of One Health is that we're actually not doing enough, even insofar as our goal is, is to promote human health. Another shortcoming is that we are, are, for the most part, focusing on non-human health only instrumentally, only as a means to the end of promoting human health, rather than regarding non-human health uh, as as good for the sake of the animals too, and and for that reason, when we see opportunities to improve non-human health that also improve human health, then we go for it. But if we see opportunities to promote uh, non-human health that might not have any kinds of direct uh, uh, effects on human health, then we might not go for it because we only see it as a means to an end. We need to see it as an end in itself. We need to care about human health for its own sake and non-human health for its own sake. And then the final problem is that in the human case, we, we intuitively naturally understand that health is only part of the picture. We also need to think about welfare and we also need to think about rights and justice, right? Uh, and and mm -hmm. health is, is not the only good that we are, are promoting here. Uh, we need to promote our health as a means to uh, promoting our welfare, our well-being. Uh, and, and then we need to respect each other's rights in the process of, of improving our health and, and welfare and well-being. But in the case of other animals, all of that broader context slips away. And not only do we not care about the, their health for their own sakes, but, but we don't really think about their welfare or their well-being or their rights as individual animals or, or, or justice frameworks as they apply to our relationships with, with other animals. And so one health could be improved by basically making all of those changes, really, really strengthening uh, the policies meant to protect human health by really working to end factory farming and deforestation and the wildlife trade and replace them with alternatives, and then caring about non-human health for the sake of non-humans and making sure that we keep animal welfare and rights and justice in the picture too. Mm -hmm. And I think people are maybe a little more familiar with how factory farming and deforestation relate to climate change and other environmental issues than they are with pandemics. Um, but I do, I do, I would like you to sort of spell out that case as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so uh, once again, factory farming and deforestation are linked, right? So when we promote factory farming, not only do, do we contribute to climate change in all the ways that factory farming does, but then we also contribute to climate change in the ways that deforestation does. And, and once again, they both contribute to climate change, just like they both contribute to pandemics. So in the case of climate change, uh, factory farming, industrial animal agriculture contributes to climate change, uh, one, by, by bringing into existence all of these animals uh, who emit uh, greenhouse gases, particularly uh, methane and, and nitrous oxide and, and dairy and beef agriculture is especially bad for methane, of course. Uh, and, and so on one estimate, industrial animal agriculture contributes about 9% of global carbon emissions, 37% of global methane emissions, and 65% of global nitrous oxide emissions, which is especially important when you consider the fact that methane traps heat about uh, 22 times as effectively, I think, as carbon dioxide does, and nitrous oxide traps heat about uh, 296 times as effectively as carbon dioxide does. And so that all adds up to uh, an estimated 14.5% 
of global human-caused greenhouse gas emissions attributable to this industry. And, and part of that uh, is, is by bringing into existence a bunch of animals who, who emit greenhouse gases and, and then, of course, uh, farming them through practices that also emit greenhouse gases. But another part of it is needing to clear a bunch of land uh, in order to create space both for animals to graze and be kept and to grow the crops that you need to feed the animals. And so, so animal agriculture and particularly beef and dairy agriculture require much more land use than plant agriculture does. Because with plant agriculture, you grow some plants and you feed them to humans. With animal agriculture, you have to clear space to put the animals, then clear space to grow a bunch more plants because you lose energy in the conversion, uh, then feed the plants to the animals and then kill the animals and feed them to humans. Way more land use required. Mm -hmm. And when you use that land, just like you contribute to pandemics all over again, you also contribute to climate change all over again because forests and, and trees and forests are one of the best ways that we, we currently have to capture and store carbon dioxide in, in the ground. And so when you cut down a bunch of trees to create space for animals and, and for uh, crops to, to feed to the animals, then you release a bunch of carbon dioxide currently being stored uh, in, in the ground into the atmosphere, and you diminish the planet's ability to capture and store carbon dioxide in the future. And, and this is why when we think about the climate effects or the environmental effects of our, our practices, we have to think about these effects holistically because part of the story is what happens on the farms, but part of the story is all of these other indirect effects like land use change that, that uh, happen prior to creating the farms. And that has to be folded into our, our estimates as well. Mm -hmm. And then when the climate starts, starts warming and there are more natural disasters, then the animals have to migrate to find more suitable habitat, except we've already cut down all the trees or, or destroyed all the habitat so they don't have corridors to migrate through um, mm -hmm. and they're doing mm -hmm. so it, it it's like you said it's sort of a vicious cycle of yes the, we contribute to climate change to pave more ways to contribute to climate change that make the effects <laughs> of climate change worse um, yes exactly exactly right and, and this is why i think it helps to think about pandemics and climate change in the same conversation because not only are the stories about how our use of animals contributes to these threats similar in, in, in some ways, but also then the stories about how these threats impact animals are similar in some ways. So, so in the case of pandemics, we mentioned with the minks that uh, part of how pandemics impact minks is by exposing them to these direct threats like outbreaks, but then part of how they, they uh, affect minks is by exposing them to all these indirect effects or amplifying ordinary threats that they would experience anyway, like human violence and neglect. Uh, and, and the same is true of climate change. When, when our use of animals contributes to climate change and then climate change, you know, melts ice caps and, and floods coastal areas and increases temperatures and increases the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events like, like floods and fires and, and causes mass migration and, and all of that, uh, that, that impacts wild animals directly. They get caught up in fires and floods, as, as we have seen, unfortunately. But then it also impacts them indirectly because when they migrate to new areas, what happens? We call them invasive species and we kill them. Or they might be subject to protection from other animals or uh, hunger or thirst or illness or injury or all sorts of other natural threats that are now amplified. So, so that is another sense in which we have to think about these issues really holistically and systematically if we want to account for all the ways in which our activities are harming or threatening other animals. We can't only think about the ways in which we directly kill them, and we can't even only think about the ways in which human-caused fires and floods kill them. We also have to think about the ways in which human-caused fires and floods drive them into new territories and then subject them to new ordinary threats, and we have to uh, be willing to accept some amount of responsibility for all of those harms. Mm -hmm. I think... You use the words uh, thinking about this holistically and systematically, and I think mm -hmm. that very well describes your approach here to the problems. Um, I think it also describes how you think about some of the ways forward. Uh, you know, when I think about animal rights and, and animal agriculture, uh, sort of the first the first two goals that come to mind are trying to rein in the the animal agriculture industry and, you know, trying to reduce, reduce subsidies, uh, you know, boycotts, bans, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. Basically reducing support for harmful industries. And then on the flip side of that being tried to build up 
more positive alternatives. Um, so mm -hmm. pursuing policies and cultural shifts that promote sustainable, healthy, accessible plant-based food. Um, I think one of the exciting things in your book to me is that you, yes, you talk about reducing support for harmful industries, increasing support for, for alternatives, um, but you also have kind of a, a more expansive vision of what it would mean to include non-human animals in our political and economic and social structures, affecting everything from infrastructure decisions to education to environmental impact assessments. So yeah, I do you want to talk about this aspect of your argument? Yeah, sure. And and I appreciate that you, that you highlight the, the need to reform our food systems, because that, of course, really is a, a, a necessary condition for any any other kind of positive change. Right. I don't uh, want to downplay so, so, reducing yeah, support. Yeah, that should not be overlooked. Increasing support. But, but I, right. But, but I also do think uh, that that we have focused on that issue so much in the animal movement, understandably, and, and I think correctly, but in a way that can push to the side all kinds of other ways that we can also be working to reduce the harms that we cause to animals or increase support for them. And, and so, yes, I, I discussed some options in, in the book, and some of them are kind of short to medium term things that we can do within existing structures, like, of course, increasing uh, research and advocacy around animals, which, which is, of course, important because if we want to have the knowledge and the power and the political will to make any kinds of meaningful big picture changes in the long run, then, then we really do need to engage in certain types of advocacy and, and research now, particularly when it comes to especially neglected and vulnerable animals like wild animals and aquatic animals and invertebrates, the sorts of animals we might not think of as much as, as we think of, you know, charismatic megafauna like, like elephants and giraffes <laughs> and, and so on. Uh, so, so research and advocacy. And then uh, we can include animals in, uh, uh, for example, impact assessments that inform policy decisions. Simply including animal welfare in, in our impact assessments can remind us that there are stakes for them, too, in our decisions. And if we do simple things like, like include their welfare in our impact assessments or have an animal welfare office or officer in the room when people are making these decisions, then that can sometimes be enough. To, to put it back on the agenda and guide people towards policy decisions that reduce harm across the board rather than reducing some harm for humans by increasing other harms for humans and other animals unnecessarily. So, so research advocacy, including animals in impact assessments. And then when you do that, you can find all kinds of low-hanging fruit opportunities to improve things for humans and other animals at the same time. So when you make uh, education and employment policy changes, you can, you can uh, uh, improve the ways that animals are covered in education. And this is something that we can do as educators in our own curricula. Uh, stop harming animals in education. Start teaching people more about animal ethics and animal welfare and how human and non-human environmental health are linked. That would be a really valuable thing for people to learn in general, and especially in, in medical and veterinary education. And then for employment policy, as we seek just transitions away from harmful uh, energy and transportation systems and towards better alternatives, we can do the same thing for food. So we can be working with farmers and with workers, as some organizations already are, um, to, to support them in transitioning away from animal agriculture and, and towards better alternatives so that our, our push towards those alternatives can also uh, be improving situations for, for vulnerable workers and we can be pursuing this in a just way. Um, and then with social services and infrastructure, we can increase public support for veterinary services and rescues and sanctuaries. Uh, and, and we can build infrastructure that leads to fewer conflicts between human and non-human animals and, and less need in the first place. For, for instance, when we build future cities in food and energy and transportation systems, we can consider animal welfare and we can include uh, accommodations for animals in our designs. Like overpasses or underpasses or wildlife corridors and new green rail systems or uh, bird-friendly glass on, on new buildings or vehicles to reduce collisions with birds, the types of things that hurt humans and other animals at the same time. Uh, and, and I could go on, uh, but, but I'll, I'll close this answer just by, by noting that then later in the book, I, I mentioned that there are also things we can do to move beyond existing 
systems. Uh, so, so not only are there ways we can improve our treatment of animals within existing systems, but we can also question our fundamental social, political, and economic structures themselves. And, and that is where we can really be making progress for, for other animals. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a previous interview with Theo Rio Francos, we briefly talked about how um, when we transition transportation to greener methods uh, that maybe just replacing every gas-powered car with an electric car isn't necessarily the best solution because mm-hmm. not only do you have to mine lithium for for this and the, at the side of the mining, there are often conflict, conflicts with indigenous groups and also um, you know mining can be harmful to the non-human animals who live there as well. Um, and sort of if you if you use more buses and trains and such that you need less fewer you need fewer total materials, it occurs to me that another reason not to do this is because cars run over lots of non-human animals. Um, yes, right. And right. roads, like you mentioned, you know, can be a major disrupt disruptor of, of habitat of of migration corridors. Um, so while That's we exactly right. yeah. while we have this moment to do a idea you know, knock on wood do a huge transition of our political economic and social structures it's mm-hmm. you know ideally we wouldn't be having to deal with with such a rapid threat like climate change but it can be an opportunity to do to rebuild in a way that is more conscious of of the other animals around us even something like bird friend the glass is something that i hadn't necessarily thought a lot about and then i read it in your book and i was like oh my gosh why don't we all use bird friend the get glass <laughs> um, right right yeah and yeah, in the in the climate movement, we think about address transition for fossil fuel workers, and we've certainly seen how trying to get rid of industries like coal, oil, and gas can can bring environmentalists into conflict sometimes with with workers who are understandably worried about losing their jobs. Um, and I think trying to get a head start on this as well. Uh, and you you cite in the book a couple programs where. Um, either animal rights orgs or, or whoever are, are trying to engage preemptively with farm workers and provide pathways to, to more sustainable, more animal friendly um, plant farms uh, seems like something that is really important to do, to start doing ahead of time um, before yeah, it I kind agree. of becomes a, a big conflict. But yeah, I, I do want to jump on the last part of your answer, which is, that we can think bigger picture about what, how can our political and economic and legal systems uh, change to better accommodate uh, non-human animals? Uh, specifically, you talk about legal and political status, um, mm-hmm. or in some cases, lack thereof. What right. what would this look like? Yeah, and and to be clear, you can you can go deeper and deeper and deeper to, towards the the foundations of of existing social, political, and economic systems, right? So once you start to question the basic legal and political status and representation of animals, that that is a deeper type of of change than merely getting some new regulations on the books or changing education or employment policy. But it might still be stopping short of full system change, like replacing liberal capitalist democracies with some other re- different mm-hmm. different type of system. Uh, but but I, I do think this level is is worthy of, of consideration too. So what I discuss are our efforts to uh, change the, the basic legal and political status of non-human animals, which, which is basically the status of objects or property or commodities. Right now, for example, in the United States and many other jurisdictions, there are basically two types of fundamental legal status you can have. You can be a person with the capacity for rights that reflect your interests and needs, or you can be a thing or an object without the capacity for any rights at all. And right now, all and only humans, plus certain stand-ins for human interests like corporations, are persons, at least in the United States and many other countries. And non-human animals and everything else in the world are, are things. So animals are indistinguishable in many ways legally from tables and chairs in, in that respect. We, we can protect them as property or as, as objects of, of public interest in the same way that we can protect paintings or statues as property or objects of public interest. But uh, we cannot protect them for their own sakes fundamentally under the law unless we pass certain particular laws because we care about particular animals. Um, and, and so one type of change, of course, would be to either extend legal personhood to all sentient beings and to say that all sentient beings can have 
legal rights that reflect their basic interests and needs, or we can develop some new kind of fundamental legal status uh, to, to apply to non-human animals. But, but the binary between persons and things is not going to work moving forward. And, and so we either need to, to extend personhood to animals or create some new kind of status and, and replace personhood with that status or, or combine personhood with that status. And, and similar remarks can be made about political status. So, so uh, in addition to, to being legal persons, we are also uh, citizens of particular political communities. I am a citizen of the United States. And so with legal status comes uh, you know, a basic right to not be harmed or interfered with in, in various ways. Uh, but with political status comes uh, a much broader set of rights within your particular political community. So I have the right to reside here, to return here if I leave, to have my interests represented in the political process, to in various ways participate in the political process. And so uh, once again, animals are left out of this. And once again, we can ask whether animals should be included in this. And, and of course, Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka and other political theorists have, have covered this ground. But, but to briefly summarize the issue and, and their contributions to this literature, uh, they argue that in various ways, our, our categories of political membership can be extended to non-human animals in appropriate situations. So we can extend uh, citizenship. And, and the appropriate relevant rights of citizenship to various domesticated animals. And we can extend sovereignty, uh, a right to self-government and non-interference to uh, various uh, uh, wild animal populations. And then we can extend a kind of denizen status, a middle ground status to various uh, liminal animal populations. And, and to be clear, this is not to say that non-human animal citizens would have all the same political rights as human citizens. They would once again have uh, those aspects of citizen rights that make sense for them, given their abilities and interests and needs. And, and so that mm -hmm. might include a right to reside and return, a right to have their interests represented, and then maybe or maybe not a right to uh, participate in the political process, depending on how you interpret that, that right and their abilities and interests. Um, so, so those are some examples of, of how we might uh, extend existing categories of legal and political status to non-human animals or consider uh, replacing them or supplementing them with brand new categories of legal or political status built from the ground up for animals. But one way or the other, they cannot remain objects, property, commodities under the law, and they cannot remain invisible within our political community. So somehow this, this fundamental status needs to change. Yeah, you, you briefly mentioned uh, Will Kimlicka and Sue Donaldson. They're the author of mm -hmm. Zoopolis, A Political Theory of Animal mm -hmm. Rights. Just if anyone listening is, is interested in these questions, I highly, highly recommend that book. Um, I think where I have, I have questions about it, uh, nits I would pick uh, in part related to what you just said, where I'm not sure if our existing conceptions of being a citizen or our existing conceptions of being uh, you know a sovereign a sovereign community or nation are are i'm not sure whether they totally work for humans uh, let alone whether we should <laughs> apply them for right. for non-humans but um right but yeah that book made me think a lot and changed how i approach this entirely um so but uh, yeah i, I do kind of want to push another uh enticing hint you dropped, um, which is around political representation or, or involvement in the political process. It's funny because in this, I would say this is, I think, episode nine of this podcast. And the way in is to every episode is we're talking about some, you know, either animal issue or climate issue or other ecological issue. And I think on the majority of episodes, we've we've made our way at some point or another to talking about what is democracy what is it for does democracy you know as we have it now with representative voted on institutions work are there other ways of doing democracy um and i think partly that's a reflection of my own interests uh but also i think it's i think it's kind of important to to all of these issues especially if, if you care about other animals but even thinking about climate change in general, it's it's an issue that affects where the actions of people in, in one location, their actions are going to affect other species, like you mentioned, other nations of humans, 
who aren't part of that political community, future generations who, again, don't get a vote. Um, and we're just kind of forced to, I think, expand our conception in some way of who, again, you know, who's democracy and for and what is it for. Um, right, right, right. But I was wondering if, if you did want to maybe talk briefly about some, and I, I don't know when maybe has yeah. a, the perfect plan, but what are ways we could involve other animals in the political process? Yeah, so so as with legal and political status, I, I think we, we should ask this question from two angles. One being, um, how could we reform or improve existing uh, approaches to political representation? And the other being, should we consider uh, more radically uh, revising or replacing existing forms of, of political representation. And, and so, so in other words, one version of the question is, how could a, a more just version of liberalism, democracy, and capitalism function, one that includes animals as subjects rather than merely as objects? And then another one is, should we be maintaining <laughs> liberalism, <laughs> democracy, and capitalism in the first place, or should we replace some or all of them with some alternative system? With respect to the, the first kind of question, how could we make, for example, democracy better by including animals as, as participants? You know, obviously animals might not be able to vote in exactly the same way that humans do because these systems use human languages and, and modes of understanding. We nevertheless can engage non-human agency more uh, as, as part of the democratic process. We can study their behavior, uh, their revealed preferences, and we can we can update our views about what they care about, what they want and need, uh, in, in light of paying more attention to what they are telling us. And then we can find ways to represent their voices as best we can as human agents in in democratic systems. And people are working on ways to do that, as you said, with other non-participating stakeholders like uh, children, members of other nations, members of future generations, people whose well-being is impacted by our political decisions, but who might not have the opportunity or the ability to directly participate in, in our political decisions. And, and there are all kinds of ways that that can be done. There can be, for example, citizens' assemblies, which are, are uh, bodies of, of ordinary citizens who are tasked with providing the state with informal advice about, about how to include this consideration in policy decisions. That would be a, a sort of less ambitious way to get it on, on the agenda. Uh, and then you can also consider much more radical possibilities like new systems of government. Uh, you, can, you can imagine two houses of government where one house of government, uh, the, the lawmakers are tasked with representing uh, participating stakeholders, and the other house of government is tasked with representing non-participating stakeholders. And then as with the Senate and, and the House in the U.S., uh, either one can, can uh, suggest legislation, but both ultimately have to agree on it and, and approve it. So, so that would just be one very radical and ambitious mm -hmm. example of how they could be represented in a, in a more fundamental way. And then there are all kinds of more detailed questions to be asked, too. And to be clear, None of this is perfect. None of this is ideal. These are all different ways of biased and ignorant human beings <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, take, taking, taking it upon ourselves to, to represent the interests and needs of, of a much more diverse and varied uh, group of stakeholders. But, well, you know, we have, to, we have to take seriously the reality that that is the situation we are stuck in, that, that we, we have the responsibility to, to think about how our actions are going to affect other animals. And so we have to consider our impacts on them and represent their interests as best we can, even though any attempt to do that is obviously ultimately going to fall short in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, citizens' assemblies during that answer. And I think one of the things that is promising to me about these where sort of randomly selected groups of citizens are, are uh, assembled to um, discuss issues like climate change and come up with policy recommendations is that... Um, they often come up with policy recommendations that are more radical or sweeping than a than that you, than that you would get from just taking a, a public opinion poll without mm -hmm. any mm -hmm. deliberation or information or educational element, um, and b that are certainly more than the elected politicians are <laughs> are often entertaining. Um, and I think one of the things that's promising about that to me is to think about. Um, what are ways in, in which we can introduce, you know, 
town halls or local assemblies or just forums for people to deliberate about issues and, and talk about them with their with their neighbors and communities um, and come up with ideas that yeah. getting pe- getting pe- everyday people more involved in the solutions and the political processes um, could lead to at the very least better results um, than yeah. than what we're getting now. Um, and it's there's a briefly there's a case in in France where Macron uh, Emmanuel Macron who uh, had sort of set up these the citizen assembly to come up with climate policy recommendations and he pledged like and we'll put them we'll put your recommendations to a, a national vote a ballot referendum like with no edits and then they came back with their recommendations and he was like well this is too much like you're asking for too much i'm actually going to edit it and there was a whole big fight there <laughs> um but just thinking yeah. about what would be ways to actually give everyday people more, more power but also there's a point at which just giving humans more power and more democracy is going to help animals, other animals, but isn't directly involving them. Uh, and I think right. one of the things you mentioned earlier, like we need better research. Obviously, I would qualify that with with research that is, and I, as I'm sure you would agree with, that is uh, not exploitative or invasive or confining or, 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 yeah. or <laughs> deadly uh, right. to the to the animals involved, but. Actually, just learning what types of creatures they are and learning to understand when they are expressing preferences um, and what their needs actually are, um, so that so that we can find ways to to represent that and acknowledge that in our political processes. And like you said, part of what makes that hard is because you know democratically including a chimpanzee probably looks different than including a you know a, a domesticated chicken versus a wild salmon versus a, a bumblebee. Um, yes. So what when we talk about, okay, animals should count morally, we should include animals in our political, economic, legal systems. Who who are we talking about and how do we know and how much? Yeah, yeah this, this gets into the, the material towards the very end of the book in, in chapters seven and eight, where I get into some of the really difficult uh, political, but then also scientific and philosophical questions that we need to answer in order to really, in an informed, rational, consistent way, include animals in health and environmental policy. And and to be clear, you know, you could you could skip those chapters if you want to just get some good arguments and initial policy recommendations and and work with that. But but yeah, if if, if you really want to get into the tough issues, I think these are the ones you have to grapple with. And and to answer your question, for me. The, the question is, you know, which animals are sentient and how much happiness and suffering can they experience and, and what is what is their capacity for welfare and and other questions like that. Other people might might uh, want to answer that question in different ways. In general, uh, you have to ask, am I am I going to consider my impacts on every animal uh, for, for that matter, every living being? Uh, or am I going to consider my impacts on only some animals, like like animals who are sentient or agents in, in some particular kind of way? And then you also have to ask, how much am I going to count the, the animals I count? Am I going to count them all equally, such that each individual elephant is uh, carries the same weight in my decisions as each individual ant? Or am I going to have some way of assigning more weight to some animals? than others, but then what would that be, right? And so I just get into some of those questions and show how different answers can lead to very different uh, types of policy recommendations in particular cases. So so if you, for example, think all living beings matter, uh, and if you think they all matter equally, then you really do need to be counting every elephant and mm-hmm. every dog and every mouse and every ant and every blade of grass equally. And every human. Uh, and well, every human as well. They, they, yeah, exactly. We're not uh, above this. We are part of this, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then, on the other hand, if you if you accept instead that only sentient beings matter and they matter in proportion to how much welfare they can have, then you have to start answering these really tricky questions again from your limited and biased and ignorant human perspective, <laughs> uh, with with our bad track record as a species about which animals mm-hmm. are sentient. And what is their capacity for welfare, and and so on and so forth. Um, so so I offer some ways of thinking about how to approach answering these questions, but I also caution people that that these are very hard questions to answer, and we do have a bad track record of underestimating animals in our attempts to answer them, 
and we're going to have to accept that this is an area where we're going to remain uncertain for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... I mean, probably if you asked most humans ever, do other animals think and feel and feel pleasure and pain, they'd mostly say yes. But our dominant economic and political and legal and scientific establish establishment until semi-recently, the last couple hundred years would have would have said no and is only semi-recently starting to acknowledge, mm -hmm. okay, okay, it, it doesn't make sense to exclude other animals entirely from, from thinking and feeling. Um, but then, I mean, it's impossible to know what anyone else is exactly thinking or feeling, but it feels so much easier to imagine what it's like to be another mammal than it does another insect. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think there's also, you know, we don't know, you know, our, our oysters sentient in some way, our, our <laughs> plants sentient in some way, our bacteria, you know, we, we have guesses to an extent where we can look at their nervous systems and behavior. But um, I guess what I'm getting at here is that this is hard. <laughs> yes, it's certainly uh, hard, if not impossible. <laughs> and so what, I don't know. I, th I think the, I think one, one move you make in the book that I found helpful is just like, we don't have to be sure to, I don't know, like if, if our best neuroscience makes us like 80% sure that mm -hmm. uh, honeybee can feel pleasure or pain or whatever, anxiety or pleasure or whatever. Uh, and even if we're not 100% sure, we might want to, you know, at least think about that. Um, exactly. Yeah. Act. Um, yeah. That that is exactly my my view. We we are not able to know for sure exactly which animals are sentient. I mean, I am not able to know for sure that you are sentient. Like the only <laughs> mind I can directly access is my own. For all I know, the rest of the world is a, a, an incredibly realistic matrix-like simulation mm -hmm. full of algorithms that act as though they they can think and feel, but actually nothing is going on inside. Right. <laughs> uh, so so even with other humans. I have to make some kind of inference based on evidence about your behavior and physiology and our shared history. Uh, and, and I might, I might think the chances are very good that you are sentient and I should proceed on the assumption that you are <laughs> rather you. than torturing you for fun. Um, but, but I, I ultimately do have to maintain some element of doubt if I want to be uh, intellectually serious about these things. And, and this is, this is no different with other animals. The only difference is, is the evidence and the probabilities. So, so as with, with humans, we can look at things like behavior and physiology and evolutionary history in order to construct uh, estimates about how likely other animals are to be sentient as, as far as we can tell. Um, and again, we have to be cautious and humble about this because our track record is bad and, and we can very easily just apply human frameworks to them and not appreciate that there could be other very non-human ways of, of realizing sentience that are radically different from the ways that we realize sentience. But that is fundamentally what we have to do. We have no choice but to do is, is look at all the evidence as best we can, as, as cautiously and humbly as possible, and then assign probabilities to the idea that different animals are sentient. So we might think that with, with all other vertebrates, uh, chances are very good, like 80% or higher that that they are able to experience pleasure and pain and with complex invertebrates like octopuses chances are once again fairly high maybe like 60 70 percent that these animals are, are sentient and then with other uh invertebrates like arthropods maybe maybe the odds are lower but still significant like 20 to 40 percent that insects for for instance are sentient and so on down the road and and you might think well that that might not establish much like if an ant is only 20 to 40 percent likely to be sentient as far as we can tell that means odds are that they are non-sentient, but that would not mean that we are permitted to do whatever we want to them, right? Like if I told you, uh, if you drink and drive, you have a 20 to 40% chance of running someone over and killing them, <laughs> would you react by saying, oh, well, then more likely than not, I'll get home fine, so no problem, I'll drive drunk. No, you would say, wow, 20, 40% is a pretty high chance that I will harm someone for no good reason, so I should call an Uber, right? I should find some other way to get home that doesn't involve imposing a 20 to 40% risk on somebody, right? And this is no different from that. The only difference is that in the drunk driving case, you have a 20 to 40% chance of harming someone that you know to be sentient. 
Whereas in the like insects farming case, you have a hundred percent chance of harming someone who's 20 to 40% likely to be sentient. <laughs> Either way, it's a 20 to 40% risk that if you can manage to avoid imposing that risk on someone, you should avoid imposing that risk on someone. So we don't need to achieve certainty about other minds. As long as we look at the evidence as best we can and come up with good uh, estimates and, and good probabilities, we can use those to inform our decision-making. And that will lead to a, a precautionary stance about harming animals ranging from mammals all the way to insects for no good reason. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about factory farms and, and fur farming and the wildlife trade, uh, we're often talking about mammals or birds or other animals who, like you said, we we find it easier to to relate to, find it easier to see as see as a sentient being. Um, you raise in the book that there just are so many insects, um, and there's something in philosophy. And jump in if I get any of this wrong, but there's something in philosophy called the repugnant conclusion, right? Which is basically if you're concerned about total happiness, which not all philosophers are, but if you are concerned about sort of the total happiness in the world, um, you get to a point where you would say that you prefer trillions and trillions of humans living only minimally pleasant lives compared to say a few billion who really flourish and feel fulfilled and have wonderful lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and re- you know, regardless of what you think of that, you want us to consider what you call creatively the repugnant conclusion with a B. Uh, pass up a, a good opportunity <laughs> for pun, even when talking about serious world-ending philosophy <laughs> issues. Mm-hmm. So, which I'll I'll briefly summarize, and then you can jump off. Uh, mm-hmm. That analogously, we might prefer to keep you know policies or or actions that allow trillions and trillions of insects to be minimally happy or possibly happy in whatever way an insect mm-hmm. is happy um, compared mm-hmm. to a relative handful of, of happy and fulfilled chimpanzees or whales or elephants or even humans. Um, am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is, this is a famous example from the philosopher Derek Parfit in his book, Reasons and Persons. And, and this is an example concerning what philosophers call creation ethics or population ethics. So, so these are decisions about uh, whether and when and how to bring new beings or new populations into existence. And this matters in discussions about things like pandemics and climate change, because the decisions that we make right now are not only impacting uh, humans and, and non-humans who already exist, but are also shaping which humans and non-humans will come into existence in the future, right? And one impact of climate change is going to be that some species will go extinct or their numbers will shrink, but other species might come into existence, and so their numbers will increase. And so if you think that it ethically matters who you bring into existence and and what kinds of lives they can have, like who you cause or allow to come into existence and, and how good or bad their lives can be, then you have to think about what are the population level effects down the road of, of these policies going to be. For example, is, is climate change going to kill a bunch of large animals like elephants, but then significantly expand the populations of really small animals like insects? Is that a possible uh, consequence of climate change? And if it is, you need to really consider all of those impacts and weigh them against each other. And, and so, yeah, the, the repugnant conclusion and what I call the repugnant conclusion just notes that some of these trade-offs can seem uh, unacceptable to us intuitively, even if they would, in fact, increase aggregate happiness. So, so for example, if instead of 100 happy elephants, you had a million or, or a billion or a trillion uh, happy ants, intuitively, as large animals ourselves, we might think, ah, the world, the future with a small number of happy large animals is better than, than a world with a large number of happy small animals. <laughs> uh, but, but you really have to ask, is that true? Is that really the better mm-hmm. world? Or might it just be a failure of our imagination and empathy, our, our ability to picture very large numbers of happy ants and how good their lives could be when you add it all up? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and again, as with these questions about well-being, and sentience and so on. I don't try to answer these questions in the book. I just 
present the problems and, and some different possible solutions to them and how they might lead to different policy decisions in an effort to show that it really is hard and it, it requires us to answer these hard scientific and philosophical questions that have really puzzled philosophers now uh, for, for generations like these population ethics questions. It, in order to figure out if climate change is good or bad, you have to figure out which animals, which populations will it increase, which populations will it decrease, and then what does that mean for the total number of lives that will exist and, and the average quality of life of these lives? And, and then what kind of uh, value do you, do you assign to that outcome? And, and how does that then reflect back on the rightness or wrongness of our actions and policies? We have to consider that or else we're probably going to be neglecting the, the most significant impacts of our climate policies. Mm -hmm. And... I think what was interesting in the book, and we don't have to get into this, is sometimes I would think in my head like, oh, well, I can get around that because maybe I don't care about total happiness. I care about average happiness and elephants are happier right. on average. But then, right. oh, that can also lead to absurd conclusions taken to their extreme. Um, exactly. And so I think the, yeah, if you're, if you're interested in uh, some of these finer philosophical points uh the the book saving animals saving ourselves will give you a lot to think about um and if if you're if you're not uh i think much of the book is written from what i think is a relatively safe assumption that on net climate change and mass extinction and pandemics are <laughs> harmful yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so a fine line i had to walk in the book between between asking all these harder questions but then not uh, losing, you know, the crisis uh, in 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 the course of asking all those those further questions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, is there is there anything else you want to add on any of this? We've covered no, just just uh, I yeah, I appreciate talking about this with you. This this is obviously really interesting and important stuff, and I'm glad that I have the opportunity to to discuss it on this podcast. So uh, thank you for for uh, taking the time to do that. Cool. Thank you for for coming on the podcast and taking the time yourself. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on Patreon uh, if you're, or signing up for the free newsletter um, to get a weekly email with each new episode in your inbox. Or just send this episode to a friend or family member who you think might be interested. Have a good day.